news I got a whole lot of questions for you This kid's gonna test my will I got a lot to learn and my baby's due Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Network, where we break down hard-to-find facts about pregnancy and parenting and empower you to make informed choices. I'm Dr. Elliot Berlin. I'm a prenatal chiropractor and doula living and practicing in Los Angeles, California. And I'm here with your co-host, Casey Bixby, who's a, a costume designer and stylist and owner of the online retail boutique Bixby Atelier and pregnant with baby number one. How many weeks now? 31. Today we're going to talk about vaginal birth after cesarean, mm -hmm. otherwise known as VBAC, V-B-A-C, or TOLAC, T-O-L-A-C, which is trial of labor after cesarean. After somebody has a C-section, in the subsequent pregnancies, they can either deliver by having another C-section, mm -hmm. or they can try for a vaginal delivery, vaginal birth after cesarean. Both of them are considered very safe. For most women, but each one carries some risks and benefits, and it's hard to nail down accurate, unbiased information about the pros and cons of each so that you can make an incredibly important informed choice. Uh, the cesarean rate in the United States is really high, 33%. That is crazy. That means one out of every three women giving birth has That seems outrageous. It is. Me. I mean, to me, it's completely outrageous. And when we do childbirth education classes, you know, 10, 12 couples in there, a third of them, I'm trying to always picture a third yeah. of them would likely have a, a C-section. And I think everybody agrees that 33% is too much, which means some of them are unnecessary. Right. And in my practice, I always see after, after the fact women who just had the C-sections, whether I knew them or not, during the first pregnancy, and then question whether or not they're one of those ones that was necessary or right. not. And um, very frequently, the second pregnancy will come along, and they want to explore the options for vaginal birth after C-section. Mm -hmm. For me, I got so connected to the cause, because then they would look for for a VBAC, and the doctors would, their doctors a lot of times would not be supportive of it. Right. And I didn't know. I just thought, oh, it must not be safe. And then when I started doing research, I found out that for most women it is safe. And uh, it inspired me to really make VBAC a, a personal cause of mine. And so we, we made a film called Trial of Labor. And yeah. we interviewed women on their journey for feedback, and uh, the film follows four of them through their feedback journey. Some of them had one C-section, some of them had two C-sections. Got it. And we kind of explore why they had their C-sections and what prompted them to want to have a feedback and some of the obstacles that they that they had to jump over, overcome cool. to have their feedback. Um and uh, you can find out more about Trial of Labor at either trialoflabor.com or informedpregnancy.com. So um, I just want to say, as always, that we're not giving medical advice here. We're not telling anybody what to do. It's all about giving you information, facts, and empowering you to make good choices together with your care providers. Um, today in our studio, we have, to me, one of the most well-versed and eloquent presenters of VBAC information that I've ever met. Jen Camel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Elliot. 
Pleasure. And Jen is uh, her organization is called VBAC Facts, VBAC F A C T S. And um, I think it's safe to say that you have uh, uh, a passion for information about VMAC. Well, I have a passion for clarity, for people to have clarity on what the risks and benefits are and what the true information is. Because, you know, as with any topic online, there's a tremendous amount of misinformation. And it can be very difficult for your everyday parent to be able to wade through that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, things are said and people often accept them as truth because their trusted Facebook friend or their Aunt Flo or their mom or their sister or even their care provider said it. And there is just a tremendous amount of confusion on what is true and what is not, what's backed up by research, what the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists actually says and what they don't say. And so um, I navigated those waters myself after having my C-section in 2004. And so I really understand and have a, a tremendous amount of empathy for what women are faced with when they have a C-section and they're trying to decide what to do in their subsequent pregnancies. Did you study it when you had your C-section or when you were thinking about a VBAC? Um, after I had my C-section, my obstetrician told me I would be a great candidate for a VBAC. I had my C-section for single footling breach. And so that's when you have one foot is pointed down into the pelvis. And then the other foot was pointed up into my rib. So I was not a candidate for breach delivery in the hospital. And there are some women who have vaginal deliveries with footling breach presentation. The primary risk is about a 20% risk of cord prolapse. And that's when the cord falls between the mom's body and the baby's body and is compressed. So oxygen delivery to the baby is compromised or even entirely cut off. And so it, and as with always, it's a risk benefit analysis for some women that is an acceptable risk. And for other women, they say that's not an acceptable risk or they can't find a care provider who will attend that birth. And so after I had my C-section, my obstetrician told me I'd be a great candidate for VBAC. I had an obstetrician who was saying, yeah, you'd be a great candidate. And I had... Uh, a social circle that was kind of like, why would anyone want to do that? Right. Mm. Whereas a lot of women hear from their doctor, you know, VBAC is really dangerous. You shouldn't do it for a variety of different reasons. And they also don't have social support. And that's such a huge component to Mm -hmm. the decision-making process is the absence or presence of social support, which is why I think this is such an important topic for even people beyond their reproductive years to understand that VBAC is a safe, reasonable, and appropriate option. There are real risks and benefits that come with both VBAC and repeat cesarean. And I feel very strongly that people should understand the risks of uterine rupture. They should understand the risks of hysterectomy with a C-section or placenta accreta or other uh, placental abnormalities. And the first time that someone hears of these complications should not be when they are that statistic. Mm -hmm. Right. That is what really frustrates me is when someone says, you know, I went in for my routine um, scheduled repeat cesarean, and I ended up with a hysterectomy. And they were not aware of the increased risks of hysterectomy that are associated with uh, multiple prior cesareans. And the same thing with uterine rupture. You know, there's a lot of um, misinformation out there around the accurate rate of uterine rupture and the various factors that come into play. And so I think it's really important for women to understand what is the actual rate, because if it happens to you, you know, hopefully you're not the person who thinks that you are more likely to be struck by lightning than have a uterine rupture, which I've read, or you're more likely to die in a car accident on the drive to the hospital than have a uterine rupture. 
I mean, that's just, it's completely inaccurate. And it really minimizes the risk of uterine Mm -hmm. rupture. And what's a shame is when women make medical decisions based on that misinformation, and then they are that statistic. I think a lot of that is backlash against the minimizing of the the possible risks of repeat cesarean. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there is so much fear-mongering about VBAC that there is absolutely this desire to put the risk into context. But we really do a disservice to women when we forward information that that we haven't actually verified that's true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, what we're... On our conversation about VBAC today, what we're hoping to give you is fact. And that's, you know, you're all about VBAC facts. That's what we want to get to the bottom of today. I'd love to start with history, some of the history of VBAC. Uh, you know, everybody, people still today come into my office thinking once a cesarean, always a cesarean. If I even mention the concept, oh, are you going to have a vaginal birth or a repeat C-section? Uh, they always say, what do you mean? You can't have a vaginal birth. That's super dangerous. And they quote it. They say once a C-section, always a C-section. And that came from 1916 when we weren't yeah. even really doing C-sections that much, right? And the article that it came from, from Dr. Edwin Cragen, was called Conservatism in Obstetrics. He was basically trying to uh, warn his colleagues not to do too many C-sections because once you do a C-section, you may have to do repeat C-sections mm-hmm. as one of the side effects. So he was trying to get them not to, you know, not to overuse, not to overplay their hand in C-section. And at that time, the rate was probably uh, under 5%, you know? Wow. And he himself in 1916 had clients who he had done VBACs with, even though it was riskier then. And so it's interesting that that once a C-section, always a C-section was, first of all, not meant to be a rule, a law, it, but and not meant to promote more C-sections. It was meant to promote less, fewer C-sections. Um, and number two, it's, for, it's from 100 years ago. What really drives the American C-section rate is the 90% repeat cesarean rate. So well, 90% of women who have a prior C-section have C-sections for the remainder of their pregnancies. Mm-hmm. That is what continues to drive that total C-section rate up. We mm-hmm. have about 530,000 repeat cesareans every year in the United States. And so... 500,000, half a yeah, million. Yeah, of just out repeat of, cesareans. Out of, out of 4 million births total. Yeah. So... It's very high. That's so that number. and that's and that's what drives it. And so really, I mean, it's getting a handle on that primary C-section rate and making sure that VBAC is a viable option for more women in hospitals because the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says that VBAC is a safe, reasonable option for most women. Recently they said that. Well, in 2010. Yes. So this is new. Well, newish. We'll go into the full history. Yeah, but. I mean, you've got you've got the risks and benefits, and then you have politics. Right. You know, VBAC is an cr- incredibly uh, political animal, and so it's not just a risk benefit analysis. There's also this whole political aspect that consumers really need to be aware of. I, these are my numbers. Tell me if if uh, if they're fact or myth. But I've had uh, when I looked it up, I, the C-section rate over the years, 1970, I have it as five percent. By 1975, doubled to 10% in five years. 1980, 16%. And by 1988, 24.7%. And now, 2014, 
33%, roughly 33%. And I, it makes sense that a lot of that is, like you said, now that people are having so many primary C-sections, they're having repeat C-sections. Yeah. 33%, nobody believes, nobody I've talked to, no rational person believes that we are better off with one-third of all women having a cesarean section. There was a point in the 1980s where the rate of VBAC started to increase. Yes. Um, it almost got up to 30%. Yeah, it was about 26, 28%. And then fell. And then fell like a rock Hot falling gauge, out of the sky. Almost, you know, down to under 10%. Yeah. So what were the factors responsible for it all of a sudden going up in the 80s? And why in the 90s then did it? Crash. Well, one of the first factors was that medical insurance companies started to say, hey, it's less money for us to pay for a VBAC. And so we really think more women should have this option available to them. But one of the things that we look at VBAC is that people don't do well with shades of gray. They want black or white. Mm -hmm. They want yes or no. They want, should we encourage this or should we not? Right. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the problems is that, you know, life is more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. Life is not black or white. And so these medical insurance companies said, hey, more women should have this option. And hospitals heard that to mean, well, we should really, we should really be beyond encouraging this. We should, you know, a lot of women didn't have a choice on whether to VBAC or not. They were forced into VBAC. Well, they were essentially forced into VBAC. You had women who weren't necessarily great candidates mm -hmm. who had VBACs and had bad outcomes and there were lawsuits. You had women who um, labored in crowded hospitals and so didn't necessarily get the best care and had uterine ruptures and had lawsuits. And then the other factor was is that we didn't understand at the time the increased risk of uterine rupture that comes with labor and induction. And that's when a woman who's not in labor is given a drug to make her body go into labor, to make contractions start. And we didn't understand at the time that when we do that to a woman who's had a prior cesarean, mm -hmm. her risk of uterine rupture doubles. Wow. wow. So it's about 0.4% in a woman that's about 1 in 240 in a woman who is not induced or augmented. So augmented is when labor is moving along, but they give you a drug while you're already in labor to make labor move along quicker. Right. So, um, so it's about 0.4% for a non-induced or augmented labor, 0.9%, which is about 1 in 111 for an augmented labor, and about 1 in 100 for women who are induced. So wow. we go from 1 in 240 to 1 in 100. Well, we didn't really, we didn't know that then. So and from so, less than half a percent to... To one percent. One percent, which is a huge change. Exactly. But it's also, it's also not, not all inductions are equal. No, yeah, absolutely. And I talk about that on the website, about how it's important to delineate between elective inductions, so that's an induction that happens for a non-medical indication, and a medically indicated induction. And ACOG actually says induction should remain an option for women who've had a prior cesarean because there are situations that occur where baby needs to be born sooner rather than later, but not necessarily in the next five minutes. If it's in the next five minutes, she's going to have a C-section. But if she, it, maybe she has a partial placental abruption. So that's when the placenta partially detaches from the uterine wall, and that decreases blood flow and oxygen delivery to the baby. And um, we don't necessarily want a woman walking around with a partially abrupted placenta, because what if her placenta completely detaches? Well, then baby has no oxygen. So right. this would be a situation where um, induction of labor 
is an option for a mom. And moms should look at the risks and benefits of induction and the risks and benefits of a repeat C-section and decide for herself with her qualified care provider about what would be the best course of action for her individually. The thing that we're going to see, as the NIH predicted, the National Institutes of Health back in 2010, they said there'll be there will be a six-year lag between the rise in cesarean rates and the rise of placenta accreta. And placenta accreta, I mean, a lot of people are familiar with uterine rupture. They're familiar with the scary aspects of VBAC. Mm-hmm. But I wonder how many of the people listening are familiar with the term placenta accreta. With how many women are Not having, many, yeah, yeah. With how many women are having C-sections, I mean, they really should be just as aware of placenta accreta as they are uterine rupture. Placenta accreta is a complication that can occur after having a C-section. Yeah. So what happens is the fertilized egg implants into the uterus in an abnormal way. And they don't really understand the whole reason of why this happens. They said there's just something abnormal with that implantation site. And so a placenta accreta is associated with an up to 7% maternal mortality rate and an over 70% cesarean hysterectomy rate. And the the personnel and the setup that needs to be available for placenta accreta is um, far more sophisticated than uterine rupture. And... It's a very serious complication. It increases at a statistically significant rate as women have more and more C-sections. And mm-hmm. what statistically significant means is that that rise of placenta accreta is directly tied to mode of delivery to those C-sections. Mm-hmm. And so they're able to make that statistical analysis, that statistical link to see that, yes, as women have more and more C-sections and more and more scar tissue, there is this greater likelihood that they're going to develop this uh, life-threatening and absolutely fertility-ending complication. So it's something that you would develop for future pregnancies. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. Which is an important point because I think when a lot of times either doctors are presenting your options or women are hearing their options, they're thinking about the right now. Exactly. And uterine rupture exactly. is a risk. If I'm pregnant, it's a risk for me right now. Absolutely. Whereas placenta accreta is a risk if I have another baby some point down yeah. the road. Yeah. And they don't know what about a C-section causes that? Well, there was a really interesting uh, review of placenta accreta. It was the Heller Heller 2012 study. And it wasn't really a study. It was a more a review of prior literature. And they just talk about how there's something abnormal. And it's associated with any sort of uterine surgery. If you've had a DNC, oh, got um, it. you know, anything like that, that results in scarring in mm-hmm. the uterine wall, that there is this increased risk. And so they don't understand why some women get it and some women don't. But the risk of placenta accreta after two C-sections is similar to the risk of uterine rupture after one C-section. So women are literally exchanging the risk of uterine rupture for the risk of accreta. And often it's not portrayed, it's not that information isn't conveyed to them in that way. Mm -hmm. They're told, you know, we will be able to circumvent this really scary complication by having a repeat C-section. But they're never told that the scare of the scary complications that are associated with that having an additional C-section. And that's why some physicians say, you know, really, you shouldn't have more than three or four, uh, three or four C-sections, because the risk of Placenta accreta, cesarean hysterectomy, placenta previa, that's when the placenta implants low on the uterus, mm-hmm. on the uterus, and so it can be between the baby and the cervical opening. Got it. Um, excessive bleeding, blood transfusions of four or more units, maternal ventilation, ICU admission, all of these uh, complications increase at a statistically significant weight rate as women have more and more C-sections. Mm-hmm. And what about the risk of uterine rupture itself pre-labor? 
Well, it's extremely rare. I actually have an article up on the website about that because that is a persistent myth that, you know, well, you're just as likely to have a uterine rupture before labor. The research that I like to cite for that particular measure is the Zwart 2009 study that was looking at all the births in the Netherlands over a two-year period. And they found that it was an extremely small number, less than half percent, less than a quarter percent of all uterine ruptures occurred before labor began. Mm -hmm. I mean, the reality is most of them occur once labor has started. The term uterine rupture by itself, you know, when, when a woman hears, oh, placenta accreta, she has no idea what that means. And it just, it's not a scary term. Really. Yeah, it sounds like a clinical term yeah. rather than like clinical. a frightening term. Yeah. yeah. You tell me uterine rupture, it sounds like my uterus is going to explode. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not necessarily what well, happens. Yeah, most of the time, I mean, over 95% of, quote, uterine ruptures in women who've had a prior cesarean occur along the prior cesarean scar. And so what a uterine rupture is, it's a full thickness opening through the uterine wall. So we have two different layers to the uterus. And when both layers open up, that's considered a uterine rupture. And most of the uterine ruptures in women who've had a prior cesarean occur along the scar line. Mm -hmm. Now, uterine ruptures that occur in women who don't have a prior cesarean, those are are more like the balloon popping. That results in a lot more damage to the uterus and is actually, because of that um, more extensive damage, is associated with higher rates of infant mortality. But it's important to, again, provide context. I think information with context is so important. And in this situation, the context would be, it's extremely rare for a woman to have a uterine rupture without prior uterine surgery. The rate is about 1 in 14,000, as opposed to about 1 in 200 for women who've had a prior uterine surgery. Mm -hmm. So that's about a 91-time difference. Wow, yeah. And so it's really rare. And so that's another myth that goes around. People say, oh, well, you can have, you know, anyone can have a uterine rupture. And it's like, well, that is technically true. But again, information with context. And mm. the context is, that's really rare to happen. And so again, that's something that's really disingenuous to say. Because it's like saying, well, anyone can die of being eaten by a shark, right? But if I don't ever go surfing, my yeah. chances of being eaten by a shark are zero. Yeah. So context is really important. It's a very good point. Uterine rupture is the main concern with a VBAC. Uterine rupture is the um, is the additional risk that comes with a VBAC. You've talked about ACOG several times, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Uh, who are they? Who is who is ACOG? Who is ACOG? Well, ACOG is a national organization which obstetricians can opt to join and be a fellow of ACOG. And ACOG uh, publishes a variety of different uh, practice bulletins. So those are summaries of the best evidence uh, of looking at a specific topic. And they have practice bulletins on VBAC, on uh, postpartum hemorrhage, on preeclampsia. I mean, really, you know, a variety of different subjects that are specific to OB. And they also publish committee opinions and such. And that I, it's a great place to start when looking for research is to look at what ACOG says, and then look at their bibliography, and then just continue to drill down. I mean, that's just that's what I've done. Okay. But it's also important to note that their practice bulletins and committee opinions are not law. No, they are not law. And as the president of ACOG says, there's no uh, ACOG police that goes around to ensure that people are actually following the best practice evidence. Right, because they're recommendations. Even their members don't have to follow their opinions. Their opinions are just opinions. There are laws and opinions. And sometimes, you know, there's different levels of ACOG recommendations. Absolutely. 
And that's and that's something that's really important to consider when we're looking at any sort of evidence is to understand that there, we have high levels of evidence on some factors, and low levels of ev- evidence on some factors. And so with the ACOG practice bulletin, they use the um, they describe it as level A through level C evidence. And so level A is when we have a high quality of evidence. And level C is when there is no good evidence on this subject. And so level C is the lowest level of evidence. And that's when they rely on consensus opinion. So that's when the people who are writing the practice bulletins get together and say, well, this makes sense. And so that's why it's really important to read the entire practice bulletin all the way to the end where they have each of their recommendations broken out by level A, level B, and level C evidence. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also, to me, it's important to understand that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists is a is a foundation for obstetricians and gynecologists. To me, their recommendations, their primary concern, the people who they owe their loyalty to is obstetricians and gynecologists. And their recommendations and opinions are primarily meant to protect obstetricians and gynecologists. Sometimes what's beneficial for an obstetrician or gynecologist is not the same thing that's beneficial for their client. And if it's going to be an ACOG opinion and they're forced to pick sides, they're going to be sticking to their mission of protecting obstetricians and gynecologists. One of the things that they, uh, they released a committee opinion several months ago on elective surgery. And one of the passages that really stood out to me is they talked about how obstetrics has historically been a very paternalistic relationship where you have the little pregnant woman trotting in and you've got the male OB kind of dictating care. And ACOG said we really should be moving to more of a collaborative model where we have the woman and the doctor working together to create a customized, personalized Mm -hmm. care plan for her based on her risks and benefits, her medical history, what she wants, and how we should be moving away from this model of care where physicians dictate to patients what is going to happen to them. And we should be moving more to a, a model of care where women, as we are the ones who will have to live with the outcome, good or bad, really should be the ones who are driving the ship. We should mm-hmm. be the ones deciding with our care provider what is the best course of action for us. Which is phenomenal coming from them, yeah. from ACOG. Um, and I don't, I'm not to say that ACOG is bad or ACOG, you know, they have very good intentions, but their loyalties are to their members. And so I think they are genuinely interested in better maternal and fetal outcomes, for the sake of better and maternal fetal outcomes. But sometimes there's liability issues, which is risk to a doctor that does not carry risk to a patient. And in those cases, it's their duty to recommend to the doctor, you may not want to do this because of the risk to you, which takes away an option for a patient. We are going to take a quick commercial break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. 
Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. In 1995, ACOG came out with a guideline on feedback. And in their guidelines on VBAC, um, I, I believe that it was the 1995 guideline on VBAC that really was responsible for that plummeting. Yeah, well, of, we got we got a little bit off on a tangent there, but that is that is like the second factor. That after we had this recommendation from medical uh, insurance companies, and we had these lawsuits that paid big, and then we had the ACOG recommendation come out that said it was the first use of the term immediately available. And so that was one of the things that absolutely resulted in the plummet of uh, VBAC rates. But when we look at immediately available, I mean, the first thing we need to consider is the fact that that C-level evidence that is consensus opinion. Uh, oh, do you want to read what it is? Just so in yeah, case people don't up. know. The 1995 ACOG guidelines on VBAC said vaginal birth after cesarean should be attempted in institutions equipped to respond to emergencies with physicians immediately available to provide emergency care. And this was based on level C. They say this is a level C yeah. opinion based on expert consensus. Wait, yes. but can I ask a question? If you are having a baby, wouldn't there be physicians immediately available for no. emergency care? If you're in like the middle of Nebraska where I used to live, yeah, uh, they don't have that many babies every week. So they don't have obstetricians and anesthesiologists and tech teams just waiting for you in case something comes up. Right. You know, you go there, you can labor for 15, 18 hours. And as you get close to the baby emerging, they'll call your doctor to come in and right. catch it. Got it. Okay. But if something went wrong, it would take them sometimes 40 minutes, an hour, right. maybe more. But that's a great question. Um, in terms of ACOG's guideline on VBAC, the issue with immediately available is it's not a specific recommendation. What is immediately available? Well, ACOG did not provide a definition. Right. And so in, in the absence of any sort of definition, I mean, does this mean that the obstetrician and or anesthesiologist has to be on the L&D floor? Can they be in surgery? Can they be seeing patients? Can they be home 15 minutes away having dinner? What does it mean? Well, ACOG did not provide that definition. So in the absence of a definition, hospitals started creating their own definitions. And one of the presentations from the 2010 National Institutes of Health VBAC conference was, I believe it was by Dr. Bernbach. I have it up on the bibliography, and you can watch the video. Um, but he did I just a, got a great idea. He did an <laughs> informal survey in Houston, Texas, and asked six different hospitals, "How do you define immediately available?" And he got six very different answers, all hmm. the way from everyone is on the L and D floor to people are 15, 20 minutes away on call. And Mary Barger, who's a certified nurse midwife, released an excellent study in 2013, and she asked the question, what was the impact of the 2010 NIH VBAC conference on VBAC bans in the state of California? And what she found was, of the hospitals that ban VBAC, fully one-third of them satisfy the most strict definition of immediately available, wow. meaning 24-7 anesthesia. 
So clearly, this is not a risk benefit analysis. This is Hmm. a very political decision. Mm -hmm. When you have a huge number of hospitals who satisfy the most strict interpretation of immediately available, and yet they still ban VBAC. Banning VBAC is is what that concept, the oh my term gosh. Yeah. VBAC ban is what made me spend five years working on a film about yeah. VBAC. Yeah. The concept VBAC is by definition the absence of a procedure. You're Absolutely. basically saying, I just want to have my baby without having any any intervention, no surgery. Yeah. And when you say ban VBAC, that translates into we're forcing you to have surgery. Absolutely. And this is the United States of America. We don't force people to have surgery. And you could say, well, we're banning VBAC, but maybe go to this hospital or that hospital. But there's sometimes hundreds and hundreds of miles Absolutely. where there's not one hospital that will allow VBAC. What, and now what is it like as far as how many hospitals still have a VBAC ban? We still have a huge problem. Nationwide, it's about 43% per the International Cesarean Awareness Network. And that's always a moving number. As 43% they are. have a VBAC ban. Yeah, either a formal written policy or a de facto ban, meaning the hospital says, oh, we totally support it, but none of the doctors want to do it. Or the doctors say, you know, we would really love to do it, but the, hosp- the administrators aren't really supportive. And so 43%, I mean, that impacts a huge percentage of American women every year. Yeah. Massive. With a thirty-three percent cesarean rate. And a ninety percent repeat cesarean rate. And then we couple the VBAC bands with the lack of social support and the tremendous misinformation. And that's how we get to this ninety percent repeat cesarean number. You have another issue, which is forty-three percent is is where there's no options. Yeah. But if you include right. where there's almost no options, very few options, like I can do it, but if I do it, I have to do it this particular provider in this particular facility. Yeah. And that facility and provider may have very different ideas on what a birth looks like than what you have on it. So they're just like, look, once you're going to do X, Y, and Z with me, I'll just have a repeat C-section. Yeah. Or people who have to travel 80 miles to have their baby if they want to have a V-bag. Right. So it's not worth it to them because they have a toddler at home. Yeah. But as Dr. Howard Mickoff said at the NIH VBAC conference, you know, everyone has the right to refuse surgery in the United States. You, hospital policy does not supersede our right to decline surgery. What would happen if someone was in the hospital and they said, we don't do VBACs here. And the woman says, well, I'm not having a C-section. I'm not having surgery to get this baby out. Well, there's a variety of different ways that can play out. And it's really on the onus of the woman to try to feel out whether she will, um, how that will be received. And ahead of time, ahead of time, because if you have the feeling as a mom, that if you go in and say that you're going to be um, encountering a hostile situation, then you really need to navigate those waters a little bit differently than if your provider kind of gives you a wink and a nod and says, look, you know, we have a VBAC ban, but I can't force you to have surgery. And if you come in and labor and you say, I decline surgery, I will attend your VBAC. Right. Sometimes that happens because right. pro- ethical providers know that they cannot coerce women to have surgery, especially in light of the increasing complications that come with multiple prior cesareans. Mm-hmm. What these VBAC bans are doing are denying women the option of VBAC and enforcing these increased risks on them per policy. I mean, one of the things that I always recommend is for women to contact the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, and they are a nonprofit legal advocacy group for pregnant women. Um, and they are a, and they are wonderful at helping women navigate the system that is hospitals and use the correct legal language. And often, 
situation, the conversation completely changes when the hospital administration becomes aware that this is now beyond just the mom and the physician. There are now attorneys who are aware of what is going on. Mm -hmm. And another strategy is for the mom to say, you know, I'd like you to contact your legal department and let them know that you are about to force, you are, you are not listening to me when I say I'm declined surgery. Right. And I would like your legal department to be aware that you are about to force me to have surgery against my will. Right. Another strategy is to say, if there's a nurse in the room, say, nurse, I want you to document in my record. I do not consent. Now, the flip side of this is that physicians, like you said, want to protect themselves from liability. And if the woman is making a decision, which the physician really thinks, you know, this is not the right decision to make, there is a high rate of XYZ complication with this decision. A one way for them to protect themselves is to make a video recording of the mom. Mm-hmm. Have the mom say, you know, this is my name. My doctor is Dr. So and so. I have XYZ complication. Dr. So and so recommends that I do this. I am declining his, his or her recommendation and I am deciding on doing this. And I know that there are these various risks involved with this, but I am the one who am ultimately will have to live with these risks. And this might be a way for physicians and other care providers to protect themselves from any sort of, uh, legal repercussions that can come with this. And Mm -hmm. so not only does this respect the woman's right to choose an option that is associated with elevated risk, as the latest ACOG bulletin says, women should be allowed to make decisions that are associated with higher rates of risk. And um, but then also protect the physician from any possible legal outcome from that higher risk decision. And we could have a whole podcast on the medical legal issues and how they drive decisions that doctors have to make. Absolutely. And eventually reduce our options and choices. Absolutely. Um, In 2010, there was a massive conference, the National Institutes of Health Conference that we've referenced a couple of times. What What was the goal of that conference? Well, before I address that, I just wanted to clarify something you just said, that ACOG says that there needs to be a surgical team immediately available. ACOG actually says physician. Right. And that's the other thing about immediately available is that they said physician. They did not specify obstetrician or anesthesiologist. They said physician. Hmm. And so this is all the different ways that it's been interpreted. You know, Mm -hmm. it's been interpreted to mean 24-7 anesthesia when that's not the language that ACOG used. As you read, I mean, it talks about a physician who's capable of performing a cesarean surgery. But the 2010 NIH VBAC conference, the objective was to raise awareness about the research on VBAC versus repeat cesarean and talk about not only the risks and benefits of the options, but also the highly political nature of this topic. And it was a two and a half day conference that accumulated in a final statement that is and all of this, if you just Google NIH VBAC, you'll come up with the website. And um, if you go to VBACFacts.com backslash bibliography, I have links to uh, my favorite presentations from that conference, and you can actually watch the videos, and they're spectacular. I mean, I, re- I really wish there were probably about 700 people in the room, most of them uh, hospital-based practitioners and administrators. I left that conference really feeling like, wow, this this is the beginning. 
you know, mm-hmm. all this incredible evidence. Now we have hard evidence on the, the serious complications that come with multiple repeat cesarean sections. Surely this will have an, an enormous impact on the politics of VBAC and the accessibility of VBAC nationwide. I mean, I'm a, am I an optimist here? Do you know what Mary Barger's study found? How many hospitals do you want to guess reverse their VBAC ban since 2010 in the state of California? Mm, I'm going to say none. One. Oh. There is one less VBAC ban in the state of California since wow. the 2010 NIH conference. Again, and why? Th- and again, this is not a risk benefit analysis. This is a political decision. Mm-hmm. When hospitals are motivated, they offer VBAC. And what's the motivation? The motivation is respect for the autonomy of the patient to make their own medical decisions. I think in our culture, People don't value uh, vaginal birth. They're scared. They're scared of the unknown. They're scared of these statistic stories that people tell each other. All you ever hear about vaginal birth is bad things. Exactly. It's going to ruin your sex life. You're going to have a huge tear. You're going to have women screaming. Uh, If I only ever heard about airplanes, uh, if the only time I've ever seen them on TV, they were falling out of the sky and crashing or in movies, or my friends, the only people who I ever met were people who survived plane crashes. I would never fly in an airplane. And that's how labor and delivery seems about vaginal delivery. It's just every time you see it in movies, it's the worst, most intense part of of dramatized, yelling, screaming, horrifying. It looks like torture. So yeah, for that reason, I think it's a lot easier to sell C-section. Again, it goes back to motivated hospitals offer VBAC. Motivated hospitals find a way to make VBAC as safe as possible, to respect a woman's autonomy, and to work within their malpractice insurance protocol. But really what you're saying is that cesareans, repeat cesareans, and VBACs both carry separate risks. Absolutely. But both are risky. But and but it also seems like doctors are being sued more often in regards to a VBAC than they are to a ces- repeat cesarean, right? Yeah. We are going to take a quick commercial break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Shortly after the 2010 NIH conference, ACOG revised their practice bulletin on vaginal birth after cesarean. What was the revision? Well, one of the things that they said is that they wanted to make it very clear that even if a hospital bans VBAC, that policy cannot be used to force women to have a cesarean or to deny women care. Because one of the things that came out at the NIH conference, and you should have seen the look of surprise on the panel's faces, is when the consumers got up and talked about how they were forced to have a C-section. And the people up on the panel were horrified. They, they were surprised. They couldn't believe it. Because we all know, we all have this legal right to decline surgery, right? But these women were led to believe they had no choice. Maybe they were threatened with CPS. Maybe they were threatened with a psychiatric evaluation. CPS is Child Protective Services. Yeah. Are, do you know of cases where, where babies were taken away? Yeah, the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, they have an excellent article. I have it linked up to my website, and they talk about all the different um, forced procedures, obstetrical procedures on women, including cesareans. And just the threat of being reported to CPS or the threat of a psychiatric evaluation is often extremely um, persuasive. 
Yeah. Right. Would persuade me. Yeah, absolutely. If I didn't and have so, the information. And so as a result of this, ACOG wanted to make it very clear. They said, you know, we made the recommendation for immediately available because we want VBAC to be as safe as possible. But let us be clear. The objective was not to deny women the right to choose what medical care they want. The objective was not to deny women the option of what mode of delivery suits them best per their own personal evaluation or own personal risk assessment. The objective was not for doctors or hospital administrators administrators to impose on women what choice they should make. The objective was to say, look, this is what would be ideal, but we acknowledge that it's 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 unreasonable. We do not have enough anesthesiologists nationwide to have 24-7 coverage in all hospitals. And in fact, if that was the standard, we would have about 75% of L&D units closed nationwide because mm-hmm. there's simply not enough. And right. that's per, I think that was per Dr. David Birnbach's um, presentation at the NIH. I mean, they're not, they're not equipped to deal with any emergencies that come up during labor and delivery, not just feedback. Well, there's a variety of different ways that they can manage it. I mean, one of them is to stabilize the woman who's had a uterine rupture or some other complication until anesthesia arrives. And then a local cesarean is always an option. Well, my point uh, is, A cesarean under local anesthesia, I should say. My point was that they highlighted VBAC as... If you don't have physicians immediately yeah. available, yeah. you can't do VBAC. But yeah. all this other stuff, that's no problem. I mean, there's a variety of other complications that can occur in a first-time mom. And we should also say complications that can occur in a repeat cesarean mom that can require immediate, prompt, um, and more sophisticated response. Um, in the in the updated guidelines in 2010, in the practice bulletin number 115, they also address other factors that linked together with VBAC, VBAC after two previous C-sections, uh, VBAC post-due date. Um, what are the what are the recommendations? How do they address these other factors, cofactors? Well, VBAC after two cesareans, ACOG talks about how the information on this specific situation is rather limited. And it's limited because the studies looking at VBAC after two or more cesareans have relatively low sample populations that refers to how many women they've included in the study. Mm -hmm. Because when we are looking at something that happens as um, uncommonly as uterine rupture, it's about half a percent. We need several thousand women, you know, three to five thousand women to really get a a good an accurate reporting of that incidence. And, and let me give you an example. If we have 10 women in our study and two of them have a uterine rupture, can we accurately say that we have a 20% rupture rate? No, no we can't. But that's one of the problems that comes into play when we have right. small sample sizes is that you have one or two events and the number reported is incredibly high. So, I mean, we've had multiple studies done on uterine rupture and we know that the risk lies about half a percent to 1% after one prior cesarean. Um, with with the studies on VBAC after two or more cesareans, we have sample sizes of maybe a thousand women, a couple hundred women. Now, the other factor is that those studies either have high rates of induction or augmentation, or they don't report the rate of induction or augmentation, but they say, we induced and augmented women. Mm -hmm. So that's another important factor to consider is because we want to be able to isolate what is the risk associated with Mm -hmm. two prior cesareans. And when we have small sample sizes, 
We don't know whether that elevated rate reported is from those small sample sizes, from the high rate of induction or augmentation, or is it really from those two prior cesareans? Mm -hmm. And when we have these other two factors that are muddling the data, we don't have good information. And we can have that exact same discussion when we look at um, uterine rupture by birth interval. So that's the time from the cesarean to the subsequent VBAC or time from the cesarean to conception. There's a few different ways that factor is measured. And then also uterine rupture by the size of the baby. That's another area where we have very small sample sizes and high rates of induction or augmentation. So again, it's hard to pin down. Was that uterine rupture because you had a larger baby? Or is it because we get those wonky numbers from small sample sizes? Or how much did that induction and augmentation play in the role of the incidence of uterine rupture? And that's why for all of these factors, ACOG says if you are expecting a big baby, if you're going beyond 40 weeks, if you are expecting twins, or you have an unknown or low vertical scar, these are all okay with VBAC. We don't have enough data. We don't have enough to data. show that they're not okay. Exactly. And and since we do have good data on the risks of multiple repeat cesarean sections, it's like, okay, so we have kind of this unknown risk on one hand and a known risk on the other. Is the ethical thing to do to, in, in lieu of having good high quality evidence linking higher rates of uterine rupture with these various factors, is it right to be just dictating for all those women to have repeat cesareans when we know what's waiting for them on the other side of that? Mm-hmm. And so again, and this is where information plus context equals clarity. So giving the information to women, sharing that, sharing the results of those studies, but putting that information into context. Can you tell me in a nutshell, what are the risks that we're looking out for when it comes to vaginal birth after C-section? And what are the risks that we're looking out for when it comes to elective repeat cesarean? Well, the primary risk that women are concerned about with a VBAC is a uterine rupture, and that occurs about a half a percent to 1% of the time. And then the other primary risk is what they called a failed TOLAC, or that's a woman who's planning to have a VBAC, goes into labor, and for whatever reason, ends up having a C-section. Women who have had CBACs, or cesarean birth after cesarean, they have higher rates of morbidity, higher rates of complications. And that's because they have their C-section, and so they have the complications associated with the C-section. But then they also have the complications associated with whatever what the reason for that C-section was. What did they have preeclampsia? Did they have um, a placental abruption? Did they have a, you know a whole host of different complications? And so um, that's why we have higher rates of maternal morbidity with CBACs. Now, when we look at repeat cesareans, we have uh, concerns about placental abnormalities such as placenta accreta and previa. We also have higher rates of cesarean hysterectomies and excessive bleeding. And as Dr. Elliot Main um, spoke about in San Diego in December of 2013, we're already seeing higher rates of placenta accreta, cesarean hysterectomy, and excessive bleeding in the state of California. And that's directly related to our 91% repeat cesarean rate in the state of California. Those are on subsequent pregnancies. Those are on subsequent pregnancies. So he said the biggest risk of that first cesarean are the repeat cesareans. Because oh, 90% wow. of women will go on to have repeat cesareans. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about the scar for a minute. The scar, there are different ways to make the incision. And uh, there's a double incision. We're cutting the abdomen and then clearing away some of the organs and tissues, taking the uterus and making an incision in the uterus as well. Um, and there are different types of incisions. Can you talk a bit about that. Well, the most common incision in America is the low transverse incision. So that's the low 
horizontal bikini line incision. And that's what about 99.5% of American women have. And so that incision is uh, down in the lower uterine segment. And so that's associated with the lowest rate of uterine rupture. Then we also have a low vertical scar that's also in the lower uterine segment. And ACOG says that a low vertical scar is okay. So vertical would be an up and down scar. Then we get into other scars like what's called a classical scar. So that's a high vertical scar and um, and scars that are like a T scar or a J scar. All of these scars go up into the fundus. That's the upper part of the uterus that does all the work during labor. And so it is believed that the rate of uterine rupture is higher when we have any scar that goes into the fundus. But when we look at the studies that we have on these scars, which are collectively called special scars, they're very limited again. Because remember, 99.5% of American women have a lot of transverse. So when you have, you have, you first challenge with sweeping up enough women to include in a study to make it a reliable study. And then we have to make sure that we control for relevant factors like induction or augmentation. So when we look at studies that have broken out and included women of various scar types, there might be 50 women. There might be a hundred women. And why would these women have not have the low transverse incision? Why would they, why would you have a special scar? Well, that's um, well. One reason would be a preterm delivery. So someone who had their cesarean maybe at. 30 weeks, 31 weeks before the low uterine segment formed. And so the only part of the uterus that's present is the fundus for them to cut into. Um, And there are a variety of other reasons. I mean, that's really a better question for an obstetrician. I'm I'm not well versed. They're usually complications, things that came up during the first surgery that make make you have to go away from the safest scar. Nobody goes in doing a cross cut on purpose. Yeah. That's plan A. Um, the talking about the scar, I see now people are starting to measure the thickness of the scar on ultrasound. What's that about? Well, there have been a variety of different studies done. Again, very small studies that are not well controlled um, that look at the scar thickness around like 37 or 38 weeks. And they say, well, if the scar is this thick, you know, you're less likely to rupture than this thick. Um, And the NIH actually looked at this and they said that there may be value looking at uterine thickness, but there is a tremendous opportunity for bias. And the other complication we get into is accurate dating. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so accurate dating, because a lot of women, you know, uh, the 40 weeks of pregnancy is based on a 28 day menstrual cycle where women ovulate on day 14. Well, that's the average. Not every woman does that. Some women may ovulate on day 21 and conceive on day 21. And that completely throws off your gestational age by a week. So um, that's one factor. Another factor is what is a normal thickness? I mean, we would really need to create a baseline of getting accurate dates from unscarred women and figuring out what is the normal thickness of the uterus of the uterus. I mean, we need to figure that out. So that that would be an important consideration to add into this study is to figure out what is normal before we define what is abnormal or what is too thin. Right. So um, this is something that gets a lot of play. But the reality is we don't have any good information, any high quality information linking um, a specific uterine thickness to a rate of uterine rupture. Right. I mostly see it being used to discourage. Oh, absolutely. V-backs. Oh, absolutely. Your scar looks a little too thin. Oh, yeah. And you and you hear that quite a bit of, of from women who are having C-sections, repeat C-sections, and they say, oh, well, thank goodness you had a repeat C-section because your scar is so thin and blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, 
that's really the opinion of that obstetrician, because some obstetricians think a really thin uterus, oh, that's really bad, you're about to rupture. And other obstetricians say, the uterus is supposed to be thin. <laughs> so um, and again, this is something that we we aren't able to look at the uterus and say whether you're about to rupture or not, because mm. most dishissences, and that's when you have one of the, the inner layer of the uterus separates, but the outer layer, the serosa remains intact. And so those are often not diagnosed unless someone has a C-section. Mm -hmm. So how often do women who've never had a prior cesarean have a dishissence and it's just not diagnosed? Or even women who've had a prior cesarean, mm -hmm. they might have a dishissence, but unless you're actually doing a C-section, you, you don't see, see it. it. So it's very difficult to say, is that an impending rupture or is it not? It also makes sense to me that just because it's thicker doesn't mean it's going to hold up better. I mean, if you have dysfunctional scar tissue that's developing there, that's not going to be stronger than thinner tissue that's more functional. Yeah. Do you know what part of the country there's, is there a constant, a heavier concentration or is it just widespread of where there's more cesareans than others? If you go to the website birthmonopoly.com, they have mm -hmm. a great map showing all the VBAC bands nationwide. Mm -hmm. And you'd think, you know, oh, well, this surely is only in like rural areas, right? But, but no, I mean, you have hospitals banning VBAC in major metropolitan areas. And as I believe it was also da Dr. Howard Mickoff said at the NIH VBAC conference is that this isn't about... Um, who's capable of offering VBAC. This is about who's willing to offer VBAC. It's amazing to me that you go just a few minutes out of Los Angeles and it's very hard to find support for yeah. VBAC. And if that's how it is five minutes outside of LA, I can't imagine what it is in areas that have fewer hospitals and smaller hospitals. Well, I have a tremendous amount of compassion for women who are in the Midwest and are faced with, well, I can um, go to my local hospital that's right. hostile about VBAC, right. or I can drive two and a half hours away right. and be with a supportive provider. Right. The logistics of doing it's that tough. when you have, you know, maybe both people in the relationship work, maybe they've got several kids dealing with childcare, travel, work vacation time, the expenses of staying in a hotel. I mean, just the logistics of all of that. I mean, the people do it because they have yeah, no absolutely. Choice. People do it. People do it. When we were making the the movie, people when we were doing our interviews, people would write in stories like that all the time. Mm -hmm. I have yeah. to go fifty miles, a hundred miles. There was one that went four hundred miles. You know, as always with any medical decision, it's always best to be your own advocate. Right. Whether this is whether we're talking about birth or prostate cancer, or, you know, heart disease is to be your own advocate and as learn as much as you can and evaluate your care provider and realize that not all of them are the same. Not all of them are up to date on the current research. Not all of them honor ACOG's guidelines, or might pick and choose what guidelines they want to incorporate into their practice based on what serves them. Mm -hmm. So um, it's always important to just be your own advocate and be critical of information that you read. Always ask for sources. Um, if someone cites you and says, oh, well, you know, 50% of uterine ruptures happen before pregnancy, for you to say, I'd love to learn more about that. Where can I learn more about that? Mm -hmm. And you'll find that a lot of people have no idea where that information comes from. They just repeat it. <laughs> yeah. They just repeat it. And so, and that's where the whole birth myth series up on the website came from, is that people would say things and I'd be like, where did you hear that? And of course, no one knew. And I was like, I'm, I'm really curious. I want to know if that's true or not. And mm -hmm. so I would find information that would either support that myth or refute that myth. You know, mm -hmm. almost always it's refute that myth. Right. I think in, in pregnancy in general, that 
is the take-home message is you have to be your own advocate mm-hmm. today. You cannot rely on just one person's opinion. Absolutely. If you don't do your homework and come in with the facts, then you're not going to be an active participant and you'll be led one way or another, whether that's the best thing for you or not. And specifically with VBAC, that that couldn't be more true. With VBAC, there's lots of real hardcore information. There are a lot of facts. And then there's lots of information that's meant to push you one way or the other. And sometimes your doctor believes that information themselves, and it may or may not be accurate. But if you don't do your homework, you're going to have a hard time making an informed choice about which option is better for you. And you're certainly going to have a hard time finding support for that choice. Uh, There are some great online resources for you to be able to do your own homework about VBAC. There's VBAC Facts at vbacfacts.com. And um, you have up on VBAC Facts, you have all the data. What we talked about today is really just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more to know. And you do a much more thorough workshop and you travel around the country doing the workshops. And on VBAC Facts, you can find out where Jen will be next. I think another great resource is ICANN, the International Cesarean Awareness Network, which came into being in 1982. And ICANN has several hundred local chapters, not only around the country, but internationally. And you can find more information or your local chapter by going to ICANN hyphen online.org i can hyphen online.org and you also mentioned the national advocates for pregnant women for pregnant women do you know how we can reach um napw.org napw.org the national advocates for pregnant women who step in and help out when you have when you're being denied your rights in uh, pregnancy and childbirth anything we left out um, well, I think also um, ACOG is a great resource, the mm. NIH um, VBAC conference. And if you go up on the vbacfacts.com backslash bibliography, you can see a variety of other uh, specific pieces of research and other resources that um, you can look at and evaluate the information for yourself and have an honest and thorough discussion with your care provider about what would be the best decision for you. I think at the end of the day, we all agree that for some people, VBAC will be a better choice. For some people, repeat C-section will mm-hmm. be a better choice. But the best choices will be made when you make an informed choice together with your providers. Jen, thank you so much for coming today and sharing your expertise. You know, one thing I'd like to throw out there is that the power to make the decision of having a repeat cesarean and the power to make the decision of having a VBAC are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Either women have the right to make their own medical decisions or they don't. Right. And so I think it's really important for um, people to step away from the duality, from the polarity of this whole conversation and understand that what is my personal risk assessment might be different than yours. And just because I made a certain decision that doesn't in any way invalidate the decision that you want to make if it's different than what I made. Jen, thank you so much for joining us on the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. My pleasure. For more information on VBAC and for notes from so many of the different topics and details that we discussed today, you can visit informedpregnancy.com. As always, if you have any questions, just write to info at informedpregnancy.com. 